Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Welcome to the weekend kickoff. There's a lot to cover. By the way, I've been working on this for a week to 10 days, but with the world changing as fast as it has been and using a format with a delay, like a podcast, it's taken me this long to just stop and commit. For more timely, if less substantive broadcasts, follow me on Twitter at dogma underscore kick. So we talked about the Russian invasion in the January 21 morning kick and the Friday weekend kickoff on the 28th. And we talked about inflation in the February 1 podcast. All of that is right in our face right now. In addition to updates on those topics, there are three countries we've talked about in the past, Norway, Chile, and South Korea, in need of updates, plus some new topics. For instance, a new topic to kick it off is this matter of silos and absolutes in investment management. Actually, that's, that's not new to this podcast. I first brought it up in my interview with Robin Wigglesworth. In January, before the war, there was some good-natured joshing about whether 2022 would finally be a stock picker's market versus a passive investor's market after a decade of the former style underperforming the latter. The Buddhist in me keeps coming back to the middle way, actively passive. And that's not exclusively an indexer's market or a stock picker's market. It's an active manager's market. Yes, professional stock pickers should do well. It's just a function of there being less and less out there you'd want to own. Selection could add a lot of value. Bull markets tend to narrow at the end anyway. But the invasion by Russia of Ukraine in the global sanctions battle further reduces attractive investments even for investors with a long horizon. And very targeted country and sector ETFs allow you to avoid trouble and focus on those fewer and fewer asset classes you want to be exposed to for the next decade. To the issue of time horizon, I have no idea how long this lasts or how bad it gets. So let's look at wars the last 70 years, and, and I'm rounding here, but just for point of reference. The Korean War lasted from the American perspective, three to four years of fighting, but we've kept the presence in the DMZ for over 60 years. Vietnam was 19 years. The Russian war in Afghanistan was nine years. The U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan were eight years and 20 years, respectively. The Cold War lasted 45 years, give or take. Now, the stock market impacts weren't that long, and that's a whole other analysis on how quickly after one of these events, the stock market rebounds and recovers to its old height. And you've seen some of those going around. But it really is a function of something we can't predict. It's just how severe this is going to get before it turns around. So take that into consideration. Another attempt at picking binary outcomes or silos is to decide if this is another Cold War or World War III. It feels dangerously hyperbolic for me, anyway, to talk about another World War, but it feels like elements of both. So let me explain. It's certainly a new Cold War, with a front move to the Dnieper River, if I'm saying that correctly, and possibly a new DMZ from Kiev west to the border of Poland. And the New World War is just a cyber war. And there's an article from 2021, I believe, about a former U.S. intelligence head of cybersecurity that quit last year over frustration with being at least a decade behind China and not getting any congressional support to help him catch up. That doesn't give me confidence in how the U.S. is going to fare. I'll put a link to that article in the episode notes. So in buying a global developed market index like EFA, which would have worked wonderfully in 99 or 2000, you've already experienced a fair bit of pain this year. And the idea going forward gives me no more comfort. It's just the opposite. And it goes down to this narrowing opportunities comment I made earlier, just fewer and fewer things you want any exposure to. If you go back to the discussion in the prior two book review podcasts about a return optimization model called time and return weighted allocation, 
It's not just about saying this country should return 8% versus this other country, which should return 2%. There is also an issue of saying, I can't make a forecast about this country or this part of the world or this sector. Not today anyway. If you can't make a probability weighted forecast with a positive net return and a reasonable level of comfort that you're going to be in the ballpark, how do you allocate to that region? And there's just parts of the world right now I can't forecast. Let's get into the specifics as we've talked about them before. Secular growth trends and assets are countries that also give you a natural inflation hedge if needed. And the lines have blurred between commodities being an inflation hedge and actually being the cause of inflation. As an introduction to a talk about what's happened in Ukraine, it first needs to be framed as a second consecutive supply shock following quickly on the heels of the COVID pandemic. And like the pandemic, now to a discussion about commodities and inflation, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and updates on countries we've mentioned in the past. What happened in the days or immediately before and after the invasion? Oil and alternative energy stocks and defense stocks were all up, as were the metals to supply the latter two. The U.S. dollar has rallied hard, as has the 10-year treasury bond. The U.S. is still the safe haven. That speaks to a secular strength versus some cyclical trend in those commodities when everything else around them is melting down. Once again, we talked in the inflation pod about how commodities that have good secular dynamics might also work in an inflationary environment. Copper, aluminum, lithium, farmland, timberland. Well, those secular stories got stronger for reasons I wish weren't true. But whether it's an accelerated move to alternative energy to get away from Russian energy or a move to increase defense spending, plus the supply shock caused by Putin's invasion, already tight supplies look to be tightening further. Here's a top-down overview of a few commodities in countries so you can get a sense of the supply shock. First, a list of statistics from various sources, including BCA. Russia is the largest exporter of oil and third largest oil producer in the world. OECD Europe accounts for 60% of Russia's oil exports. About a third of the UK and EU's natural gas imports came from Russia last year. Russia and Ukraine account for 14% of global wheat and corn production, with Ukraine number four in the world in corn production and China its largest customer. Russia was the sixth. Russia and Belarus are huge suppliers of fertilizer products. Base metals were already in tight supply, and Russia provides 5% or more of global aluminum, nickel, and copper production. Aluminum production, I should add, is very, very energy intensive, as is some fertilizer production, as they both use a lot of natural gas. With that as background, let's update you on some of the countries we've mentioned in the past and realize that buying country markets with top-heavy concentration, a few names, is a form of active management, even if you use a market index for that exposure. None of these are recommendations, but I will start disclosing, a la Jim Cramer, what I own among those things I talk about in the interest of full disclosure. Chile is a good place to start. The largest company in the Chilean stock market index is a ticker SQM in the U.S., Sociedad Química y Minera de Chile, and I apologize for my horrible Spanish. SQM is the largest position in the Chilean index, about 15%. The country is the leading copper producer in the world and possesses the largest lithium reserves. There is a state-owned mining company that extracts copper, but much of that mining is done by large global miners with operations in the country. Some strategists recommended getting out of Chile before the election at the end of last year due to uncertainty surrounding the outcome of the vote, as well as a new constitution, something I've talked about before. Yes, there's risk here, but there might also be opportunity for the country. Go back and listen to the interview with Wigglesworth for more. But back to SQM, here are some quotes from the earnings release from just a couple days ago. 
In the fertilizer markets, we saw prices increase considerably in 2021, and we believe that average prices during 2022 will be higher than the average prices from 2021. Positive news was also seen in the iodine market with demand in 21 surpassing pre-pandemic levels. This strong recovery to a strong pricing environment during the year with prices increasing over 11% in the fourth quarter 2021 when compared to the third quarter. In the lithium market, our sales volumes met new records during 2021 when they surpassed 100,000 metric tons. We believe that our prices in the first and second quarter of 2022 will be significantly higher than prices reported during the fourth quarter 2021. End quote. Then there are more comments about capacity expansion across the three product lines. So we'll see what President Boric does with his new position and the new constitution. But having been blessed with relatively huge reserves of copper and lithium, what I call again the oil of the alternative energy age, if done right, the whole country could benefit. I do own the Chilean market ETF. Now to Europe in the broadest sense. If you look at that map circulating about how oil and gas flow west out of Russia, there's only one country that gets nothing from Russia, and that's Norway. Ireland and Denmark might as well get nothing, but the largest company in Norway is Equinor, the former Statoil. It's 11% of the Norwegian index, the largest position. There's also a fertilizer company, Yara, that represents 5% of the market index, and a couple other cool companies in waste management and consumer products. I don't want to overstate the fertilizer alternative story too much, as Russia's exports are heavily weighted to specific fertilizer ingredients like nitrogen and potash, and natural gas is a critical commodity in the production of fertilizer, as I said. Norway produces about 2 million barrels a day of oil, not huge by global standards, about 2% market share and 14th in the world, but it's a big number for a country of less than 5.5 million people, and the reason the country has that $1.3 trillion in what outsiders call sovereign wealth fund. The Norwegian index has been holding in there largely on the back of the Equinor position. In different accounts, I do own a Norway ETF, Equinor, Tamra, and Orkla. On to South Korea, home to Samsung, LG, SK, Hyundai, and Kia. Samsung is the 900-pound gorilla in the index at just over 20%. There has been concern about the impact of sanctions on Korean exporters, but I don't think Russia is more than 1% of Samsung's revenue. And just this morning, there was news that Korea got exemptions for its cell phones and white goods from the United States. Direct chip sales could be a separate issue, but again, I don't think it's big. On a lighter note, I put my money where my mouth is and bought a Kia Nero All EV. It's awesome. That experience may be a separate podcast as I learned a lot about EVs in the process, and it may be the best investment decision I've made all year. A new name on the country watch list, Australia. A good reminder that when you make a country allocation, you make a sector allocation. Denmark's heavy in healthcare, South Korea in tech, Singapore in financials, etc. Australia is 20% materials, to use the S&P parlance, but those are real commodities in Australia. While in the U.S., when you see materials, it refers more to specialty chemicals and the like. Australia is 34% financial, so combined, a very heavy value bent, which was a good thing when interest rates were rising. The largest position is the Commonwealth Bank of Australia at 11%, but You'll also see large global miners with local listings, BHP Group and Rio Tinto. Just know if you own both Australia as a country and the miner ETF PIC, P-I-C-K, as I do, you own a bunch of BHP and Rio and a bunch of exposure to copper, among other commodities. Again, buying country index and sector index ETFs, though seemingly passive in nature, is very much a form of active management. I also own the ETF XME, which has more exposure to aluminum and steel. And it was an ETF that was just called out on Twitter and LinkedIn by Julian Bridgen of MI2 Partners. That's a guy worth following. 
Now to inflation in the U.S. specifically. There was a demand shock in the U.S. as well during the pandemic, where consumption tilted heavily toward durables, which were disproportionately impacted by the supply shock, exacerbating the inflation statistics. Just due to what are called base effects, that is, annualizing either higher or lower numbers in the same month a year ago, March data, to be reported in April, should show a downward trend. However, due to this second, this back-to-back supply shock scenario we're going through, it's hard to see that positive trend lasting very long. And as a reminder, these shocks are both global in nature, the pandemic and the war in Europe, nothing unique to the U.S. Last high-level thought. BCA the other day suggested that alternative energy generally, and the metals it will take to make the conversion possible specifically, could take a backseat to a new military buildup along that new Cold War front. Maybe. But I still say that energy independence 10 years from now will be defined by how much alternative energy generation, distribution, and storage a country has. And energy independence is now independence, period. Europe is learning that the hard way. With the dollar up and interest rates down, it's a good time to remember that higher prices will slow growth. Demand will crack. I think that's what the 10-year and 30-year treasury rates in the U.S. are telling you, despite the present and near-future inflationary pain. And you'll find out why that's true in this weekend's book review of The Great Wave, Price Revolutions and the Rhythm of History. I've been working on that book for over two weeks, and it's amazing. You're not going to want to miss it. I'll have it ready by Monday morning. Peace.